If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to take a peek in Ezra again, chapter 7, but our our main passage is going to be Genesis chapter 50, so you can kind of turn it and get ready for reading God's Word together. As you're turning there, I want to share a little bit of testimony about my family. A lot of you know uh, kind of my, my journey to land here at First Baptist that God has called us to serve here at this church. Now, a lot of you know the places we've stopped along the road, but it dawned on me that a lot of you don't know kind of where we've been and, and what we've done. I wanted to share a little bit with you about how God has brought us here to First Baptist. So the, the short of it is, uh, how much time do I have? The, the short of it is, uh, Hannah and I have been married for 15, going on 16 years, and in that time we have made six moves. So six moves in 15 years is a lot. Six different homes we've had in a 15-year period. And I'll tell you, it skewed a little bit. It sounded even worse, but we have been here now five and a half years, uh, going on six years, longer than we've stayed anywhere else. And by the way, we're going to continue that. So praise the Lord for that. But I'm glad that was an amen and not an oh me. We started off in Kentucky uh, when we first got married. We were still both uh, taking classes at college. So I finished my senior year of college, uh, and Hannah finished uh, up some, uh, some classes she was taking as well there in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, midway through my senior year of college, we took a church part-time near the Lexington, Kentucky area, and we lived there for a little while, and I was a youth pastor uh, just outside of, of Lexington for about a year and a half. Uh, at that church, I still love many of the people at that church, keep in contact with many of those students who are now parents of their own, and, and uh, it's neat to kind of follow through Facebook, but we were only there a short time. God made it very clear that that was just not a, our permanent place, as much as we wanted it to be. And the Lord opened up a door for us to go to a church in Ohio, or, or we thought so. Uh, as a matter of fact, we went and we interviewed, and we had one more meeting to go uh, in Ohio. This church wanted to pay us very well. As a matter of fact, I've never met a youth pastor who would be making as much money as I would have made at the Ohio church. They wanted to pay off some of our debt, and actually, even though we didn't end up going there, sent us money to help pay for some medical bills we have. Uh, the, the pastor seemed great. The associate pastor and I got along really well. It was a large church. It looked great, and God closed that door. And we scratched our heads thinking we're wanting to start a family. We were pregnant with Callie at the time. And, and the Lord just shut it down and said, no, that's not where you're going. And there's a longer version to that, but the shorter version is God then opened up the opportunity for us to go to another church in Kentucky, western Kentucky, where my family lived. And we spent four years as a youth pastor in a, a church in Princeton, Kentucky. While we were there, our pastor had some uh, moral discrepancies. We'll just leave it at that and had to resign. Uh, and they asked me to be the interim pastor. I did not want to be the interim pastor. Who wants to be responsible and be a pastor? Not me, right? Yeah, but I was made the interim pastor. I got to preach. Uh, me and a, another uh, retired pastor kind of shared preaching duties for about a year and a half. I got to preach and help lead that church through a really difficult time. And in that uh, movement, God opened a calling for me to be a pastor. Nobody was more relieved than me when we finally hired a pastor and I could go just back to work with students. I was so excited and yet Yet when I did, it wasn't that I didn't love my students. It just was very clear that was not my calling. And so the Lord opened up the door after four years in Princeton, Kentucky, for me to be the pastor of a church in Batesville, Indiana. And I pastored my first church. The first, let's say, year went great. We were a very small church. 
Uh, we, we were doing good if we had 15 to 20 people on a Sunday morning, but I love those people. I love that community, and we were really building something. Hannah started a very strong women's ministry that, that was still going in that community until very recently, even though we had left. Uh, she, she helped plant uh, the seed with a lot of families in our community. We had new young families coming in. We started a children's program on Sunday night that, that went well, and, and things were really going uh, really good. And then that last six months we were there, so you can see we stayed there a short time, was the complete opposite. There were a few in our church that just decided they wanted the old pastor back. For what reason? Other than they knew him and they liked him, I don't know. So I started withholding tithe money so that it would make it difficult for them to pay me. They started fighting everything. We had an argument over leaving ice cream in the freezer. I asked them, where would we leave the ice cream if not in the freezer? I don't know, but it did not belong in that freezer. So uh, everything we fought, and, and it was a struggle, and I felt like a failure. And so I, I sought God's hand. And can I admit to you that even as a pastor, as a minister, sometimes you fight against God's hand? God did not call me to be a youth pastor again, but that's what I was comfortable with, and that's what we looked for. And we ended up taking a church as a youth pastor in North Carolina. Let's get as far away from this pastor mess as we can. We were there shorter than we were anywhere else. It was a great church. By the way, a healthy church, one of the healthiest churches I've been at. They had grown tremendously, had great things for young families. Their pastor was energetic and loved the community. They were uh, outreach-oriented. Uh, there were some things that, that I didn't love that they did. I would have done differently, but they weren't done wrong. They just weren't done the way I would do them. And, and God used some of that and the distance and the calling just to remind me, you are not called to be a youth pastor you can run against my will if you want, but that's not what I called you to. And we were miserable, even in the midst of a healthy church. It was a time that, that we had sickness, hit our family really hard. We were far away from any help, and we felt lonely. We had a church family that wanted to love on us, but we were just getting to know them, and we needed, we needed our family, family. And so God made it very clear, you're not called to be a youth pastor, you're called to be a pastor. We went and took a church in the western part of Illinois, Steelville, Illinois, uh, another church that was, uh, that was solid as far as their, their growth. They were stable. Um, they, they didn't mesh well with my view of ministry, and we didn't find that out until we went there, but they were good, godly people. But we were there for a year and a half and had decided, matter of fact, we had talks. Well, we're going to be here while I get my, uh, my master's degree, and then we'll see what God has for us after that. We figured we'd be there four, five, six years maybe, and we were going to plow through some of the differences that we had, and, and the Lord, again, saw differently, and he, he opened this church up to look for a pastor. By the way, I want you to know, now full disclosure, Hannah and I had conversations about, would we ever move to Robinson? Would we ever take First Baptist? And every time we had those conversations, it was, no, I don't think that's really where we want to go and what God's calling us to do, right? <laughs> As a matter of fact, I feel like two weeks before uh, this, this position came open, we had had a conversation about what's our long-term plan. We're probably going to be here four or five years and try to figure all this out. And uh, we'd said, well, um, we really wouldn't want to move to, to uh, Robinson, Illinois. If anything, we'd go back to Princeton, Kentucky, where I was a youth pastor. And as, as fate, I guess you could say, would have it, they were looking for a pastor too about the same time this church was looking for a pastor. And yet God made it abundantly clear. His hand was moving us, and I believe wholeheartedly God has called us here, and I'm thankful for that. 
I share that with you because I want you to know that, that God puts his hands on us and moves us different places, whether we're ready or not. Sometimes we go with his plan and, and things seem to go well. Sometimes we go with his plan and things seem to fall apart. Sometimes we go against his plan and yet we still feel like we're doing good. And sometimes we go against his plan and, and God corrects us. In every circumstance of life, we have a decision to make. Will we follow the good hand of God or will we not? And we cannot trust our circumstances to tell us if we were right or if we were wrong. There were some churches we went to that were great churches that we should have never gone. There were some churches we went to that I know God called us there and, and we left too early. We need to start discerning, God, where is your will for my life? Where do you want me to go? And not base it on, I feel good about it, or I have this emotion, or things are going well. But instead, instead, just ask God, where do you want me to go, and what circumstances should I endure? And so this morning, I want to ask the question, how do we find God's will and the good hand of God? I want to reread some verses in Ezra. Last week's message uh, was primarily about being in the Word, primarily about studying Scripture, but there were a couple of verses that really struck me in Ezra chapter 7 that sparked this sermon before we go to Genesis chapter 50, and I want to share them with you. For starters, Ezra 7 verse 6 says, Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, and listen to this phrase, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. But I want people to write that about me. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. That's not the only time we read that. In verse 9, we read something very similar. We, we look at his travels, how quickly he was able to get there. And look at that last line. For the good hand of his God was on him. I want to be like Ezra. This isn't the only place, by the way, we find it. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one book. And there are references in Nehemiah that you can turn to. I'm, I'm not even going to highlight them because there's really too many for time. But just in the book of Ezra itself, look at these verses. 728, the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Chapter 8, verse 18, and by the good hand of our God, we accomplished this. Chapter 8, verse 22, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Chapter 8, verse 31, the hand of our God was on us. You can't read Ezra and Nehemiah without seeing God's hand work working in the lives of people. And as I read this, as I was preparing for last week's message, I found myself praying, Lord, I want your hand on me. How do I get that? How do I get your good hand moving me? How am I to be attuned to your will for my life? So I start looking all throughout Scripture about how God moves people in the right place at the right time. I have good news for you. God has a desire to place his hand and guide your life. I have bad news for you. We typically don't like where his hand leads us. I want to look at, at a, a story in Genesis chapter 50 that I think is the perfect example of how God's good hand moves in the lives of people. In the book of Genesis, we read the story of the, the founding of the nation of Israel. So we have men like Abraham, who as, as an old man gives birth to a son, Isaac. And he gives birth to one son, who then gives birth to two sons, one of which is a man named Jacob. And he gives birth to 12 sons. 
And out of these 12 sons, an entire nation is born. You can see God's hand from Abraham, the 100-year-old man, having a son, being promised to, to be the father of an entire nation, all the way through the end of Genesis, where finally you're starting to see his family branch out. But there's one son in particular that we see God's hand on very clearly, and that is Joseph. Now, let me give you a summary of Joseph leading up to Genesis chapter 50, in case you're not familiar with the story, or maybe to remind us and see God's hand on Joseph's life. Joseph was the firstborn son of his father's favorite wife. Even in 2020, that phrase sounds weird, right? So uh, Jacob had uh, two wives and also children with their two servants. This is not a model for how to do marriage. This is just reporting what happened. One of his wives, one of his, his, was his favorite. He loved her more than the others, Rachel. He loved Rachel, and yet she was unable to have children. So finally, when she has a son in his older age, Joseph is the 11th born. At this time, the baby of the family of his favorite wife, and he was daddy's favorite son. To, to make things worse between Joseph and his brothers, they all hate him for being the favorite, his father gives him gifts like this, this brightly colored coat that stands out among everything else to, to signify this is my favored child. Those of you who are still living at home, do your parents have a favorite child? We, we have this conversation all the time. We don't have a favorite in our family. We don't. Your parents probably do, and you guys can figure out which one that is, but we don't, right? It gets more complicated when Joseph starts having these dreams, these dreams that all of his family, his brothers, his parents, and everybody around him bows down at his feet. Here he is, the baby of the family, the favorite, and he sits down to breakfast one morning and goes, I had the strangest dream that I was going to be the greatest thing and you guys were just going to grovel at my feet. That didn't make his brothers like him anymore. So in jealousy, his brothers decide, they really hated him at this point, that they would kill him. And they throw him at the bottom of a well while they're out doing their work. But one of the brothers has an idea. Now, you think this brother, Judah, is saving Joseph. He's really not. He sits there and he goes, you know what? If we leave him at the bottom of the well, he dies and we get nothing. But if we sell him to those slave traders walking by, we put some money in our pocket and get rid of our brother at the same time. Well, this sounds like a good idea. So they bring Joseph out of the well. And instead of saving him, they sell him to these slave traders who then take him to Egypt. They fake Joseph's death. Uh, Jacob is sad. His youngest son is dead, or so he thinks. Joseph moves on. When he gets to Egypt, it doesn't get much better. He becomes a, a prominent servant in a man named Potiphar's house. And so things are, are looking up a little. He's a slave, but at least he's a favored slave until Potiphar's wife decides Joseph is easy on the eyes and uh, she would like to have an affair with him. Well, Joseph, being an upstanding moral individual, pushes her away. She gets so upset and jealous at that that she makes it out to seem like Joseph was trying to rape her. Total lie. She makes it up. But Potiphar believes his wife and has Joseph thrown in prison. It's not getting much better. Joseph has a couple of roommates, cellmates with him, one of whom has a dream that he's going to die, and Joseph tells him about his dream, and he dies. Another one has a dream that he's going to be liberated, and he 
certainly comes to pass that he is freed and liberated. And this man who is free becomes a cupbearer or is returned to the cupbearer of Pharaoh's house. And he remembers that Joseph could interpret that dream. Years later, Joseph spends years in jail. Pharaoh has a dream, and this cupbearer goes, I remember a man who I was imprisoned with who can interpret dreams. Maybe he can help you. And so years later, they go and pull Joseph out of prison, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream, basically saying that Egypt and actually all of the surrounding area was going to have seven years of abundance, going to have more food and crops than they know what to do with, followed by seven years of famine and drought where they'll have nothing. So Pharaoh says, what should we do about this? And Joseph says, I think it'd be smart if over the next seven years we started storing up some food. Because the, the following seven years, we're going we're gonna to have nothing and we're going to need it. So sure enough, Pharaoh agrees that this is a good plan and puts Joseph second in command of all of Egypt and oversees this project of storing up food for seven years. For seven years, they indeed have an abundance. They store up, followed by seven years of famine where, where not only the nation of Egypt is struggling, not only are they able to help their own country with Joseph's plan, but, but people from all over the area are flocking to Egypt because they know they have an abundance of, of food in a time of famine. Joseph is a hero. So that makes, then, Joseph's brothers, enduring the famine, decide, let's go to Egypt. Let's find this food that they say is so abundant. And when they show up, they immediately recognize that they are in a heap of trouble because they have realized that their brother Joseph, who they've sold into slavery, is now in charge of divvying out this food. Through a, a set of circumstances, Joseph ends up revealing himself to them, saying, I am Joseph, it's me. They're terrified, they think they're going to die, and instead of killing them, Joseph says, why don't you bring your family and come live with me in Egypt? They go and get his father, who's rejoicing because his long-lost son is still living. The family is doing well until, and this is where we'll pick up our reading, Jacob dies and the brothers are scared. What happens now that daddy's dead? He's going to remember what we did and he's no longer going to be gracious to us. So we pick it up in Genesis chapter 50. After a life worth living, a life of struggle and abundance, we see the death of Jacob. And in verse 14, after Joseph had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. They're, they're trying to, to put words in Jacob's mouth again. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. You can hear that they're beckoning to their dad over and over again. Daddy said, forgive us. So please forgive us, the sons of your beloved father. Right? They're groveling at his feet. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. By the way, here they're fulfilling his dream, aren't they? But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And here's the verse I want you to focus on this morning. As for you, you meant evil against me. 
But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, if there was ever a picture of the good hand of God, it has to be on Joseph's life. So this morning, as we study the good hand of God together, I want to share with you two things about God's hand. If you have your bullets, you can jot down, take some notes. Uh, there's just two short things, and you can write down some other verses and, and things as well. But I'm going to tell you about God's hand this morning that hopefully will give you comfort. For starters, God's hand always guides. It always is guiding. You know, we think that we are in control of our circumstances, don't we? As if we have a say on everything that goes on around us. I'm a bit of a control freak. My wife can tell you that. The people that work with me can tell you that. I like things a certain way. I like things ordered a certain way. And, and when things aren't exactly how I envision them, I get frustrated. And I spend hours really wasting time to get things what I think are perfect. Because I want to be in control of the circumstances. When I preach a sermon on Sunday morning, I, I put my PowerPoint together and I read through it four and five times. I'm going to tell you, as we were worshiping, uh, confession time, I needed to be worshiping. And I was, but I also noticed an error in my PowerPoint. So I'm going through and trying to correct it real quick before I come up here. Because every circumstance around that I can control, I want to be in control of. I think God looks and says, it's kind of cute how you think you're in control of things. You know? <laughs> think about how, how Joseph controlled his situation. Think about this for just a second, how Joseph manipulated things just right to get to be second in control of all of Egypt. For instance, think about Joseph and how he chose to be born of his father's favorite wife. Wasn't that a wise decision he made? Think about the dreams that Joseph dreamt. I don't know how many times I've laid down on my pillow and thought, I want to dream about going to Disney World with my kids. And that's what I dream. All the time that happens. Doesn't that happen to you? Yeah, we have complete control over our dreams. Joseph decided, I'm going to dream about my family bowing down to me. And in his own decisions, what do you know? Joseph was dreaming about the future. I, I've got to think that, that Joseph had some wisdom we don't have when he threw himself in that well to die. Or when he suggested to his brothers, hey, instead of leaving me here to die, why don't you sell me to a life of slavery? That would be great. Joseph's decision-making there seems on point. When he willingly went with those slave traders, I'm sure he was thinking, this is all going according to my plan. And I love, after everything that happened at Potiphar's house, how Joseph gets thrown in jail, but as he checks in at the reception desk, says, I would like these two gentlemen as my cellmates. Can you please have us room together? I've got a plan for these two men. I've got to think that it was Joseph's own genius when he single-handedly caused a famine for seven years in the surrounding areas. Joseph was as far from in control of the situation as he could be. And I have to think that you and I are more like Joseph than we want to admit. We don't have control over this vast world around us. But you know who does. It was the good hand of God who threw Joseph in that well. It was the, the good hand of God that, that passed those slave traders by. It was God's good hand that put him in jail with two men, and one in particular who would decide or help decide his fate. It was God who sent the years of blessing. It was God who sent the years of famine. We see God is always directing the circumstances of our lives. God is in control of all that we have around us. His hand is always 
guiding. There's a bit of fatalism there that we, we want to be careful not to fall into. That doesn't mean that, that God orchestrates all of our decisions. It doesn't mean we don't have our own decision-making and volition, our own desire and, and necessity to make good and wise decisions. It doesn't mean we don't do things on our own. What it means is every circumstance, even the decisions we make, God is still in control of. God is able to do things with that we can't do. We look in Scripture at, at men who made conscious decisions, but most of the time they're bad decisions. You know, it was Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham who made a decision to, to have an illegitimate child because he was impatient for the child that God had promised. It was, it was a man named King David who decided he, he liked the looks of a woman who was sunbathing and, and thought that he would, he would call her and have an affair with her and then murder her husband to cover it up. These are the decisions that we typically make, right? These are the controls that we want to have. And they're not all bad decisions. It was the decision that Caleb and Joshua, two spies, made to report on the faithfulness of God in spite of ten other spies reporting that, that it was impossible to do what God has called them to do. We make decisions, good and bad, but here's what I want you to catch. God is guiding every decision we make. He is still in control when we make the right decision and when we make the wrong decision. God doesn't remove his hand of control just because he's given us a free will to decide. And that's either extremely comforting to you or extremely disturbing to you. And I would argue that, that your relationship with God will determine whether that's comforting or disturbing. For me, I find great comfort in knowing that even when I mess up, God does not take his hand off of me. I love that even when I'm in the valley of life and things are going horribly wrong, even when I, I don't even know where to take my next step, that God's hand is still moving. I love that when I'm in a jail cell with two other guys who are having these weird dreams, that God says, I've got this and I'm in control. I love that when there's plenty, God has blessed me with plenty. And I love that when there's famine, I can say, God, you know what you're doing even in this. But I understand there's some of you who go, I, I don't like this idea because I still want to control my own life. This is terrifying to you because you want to be in charge and you want to make the decisions. And when I let myself sink into a place of my control freak, I have to know what's going on. I find myself, I find myself angry at God that he wouldn't let me make my own decisions. God, how dare you give me these circumstances? How dare you let me struggle when you could save me? How dare you sell me into slavery or throw me in a well? Why would you do that? I would never choose this for myself. I believe wholeheartedly that, that our relationship with God determines whether we, we see this as a good promise or a, a difficult promise. Let me help you if you see this as a difficult promise. Our second truth I want you to learn about God's hand. God's hand always guides, and secondly, God's hand always does good. Even if you don't believe this this morning, will you write that down? Even if you're struggling and saying, I don't know that God was good in this circumstance, can, can you commit that to memory? I think it's important for us to know God's hand always, always does good. Our key verse here was, was Genesis 50, verse 20. And I want to read it again because this is one that, that will be life-changing if we can understand. 
Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. You wanted the worst for me. But God meant it for good. Think about that phrase. The, the, the faith that God or Joseph had in God to utter these words. When I sat in that jail cell for years, not knowing God's will for my life, when, when I knew and plotted my revenge against my brothers, hoping one day I could bust out, return back to my home, and let them have it. Whenever I thought I was at my worst, I know God meant it for good. He only works in good. Before we get into to more about God's good hand, let me remind you that God only does good because His nature is good and His nature is perfect. As a matter of fact, what God does is by definition good because God is good. So if God decides that He wants to, to come down to earth and wear a yellow shirt all the time, God's decision to wear a yellow shirt is a good decision. If God decides that he wants to to send his son down to earth and crucify him, that decision is a good decision because God is good. There's a reason why we don't call the Friday before Easter Wicked Friday or Evil Friday. We call it Good Friday. Have you ever pondered that and thought, "They're, they're killing Jesus Christ and we're calling it good? Literally, on Friday, they're nailing him to a cross, and we call it good. It's not because the act was good. It's not because crucifixion is good. It's because God's hand is good. Everything God does is good in every way. God's hand always does good. We read in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. So some people like to qualify this statement and say, God does good for those who trust Him. Only for those who trust Him. I've even heard sermons that say, if you don't have your trust in Him, don't expect God's good hand on your life. And there's truth to that in one sense. God's hand always does good for the person who trusts and loves Him, and that good always results in, in what we would call blessing. Joy and peace, Maybe not wealth and prosperity on earth, but ultimately, whether it's in this life or in eternity, we get to the place where God puts us second in command right under Jesus and says, rule and reign with me, just like Joseph was. There comes a place in time where God pulls us out of the jail cell, out of the well, out of our bondage and slavery, and and liberates us. So we know that God, for those who love him, eventually and often immediately gives blessing to those who care for him. But I want to tell you this morning, it is not just those who trust him that God does good for. As a matter of fact, we see that for those who don't love and trust God, he is still good. His good hand still works. But what we find is his good hand working, not in blessing, but in justice. God is a fair and a good God. Truth is, those who reject him and push him away, God looks at them and he still says, I'm going to be fair and just and give you exactly what your life has desired. You want control apart from me? I'll give you eternity apart from me. That's fair and that's loving and that's just. You want to break the rules that I've set before all of creation? I'm going to justly punish those things. Even in God's judgment, we see his good hand moving. 
God's hand always does good. I'll wrap up by, by sharing a, an illustration that maybe will help this, this argument we have with God. See, we, we view God as, as being good when he gives us what we want. And so we ask God, Lord, I want you to bless me, and when you don't bless me, I'm going to be angry and upset. And this is what is, is known a lot of times as treating God as a vending machine. And we know how vending machines work. Here's how a vending machine works. If you have the right amount of money, the, the nice crisp dollar bill, not the crumpled one, but the, the nice perfect dollar bill, if you insert that into a vending machine, you can push a number and request your Dr. Pepper, right? And that Dr. Pepper comes down out of the machine because you put the dollar in, you pushed the right button, and you received exactly what you pushed the buttons for. And we think God should work this way. As a matter of fact, we, we expect God to work this way, and we get brokenhearted when he doesn't. Here's what I found about vending machines. When often I put the right amount of money in and I push a button, I will get, instead of my Dr. Pepper, a Pepsi. And can I tell you, there is nothing more vile than Pepsi on this planet. Coke is a good thing, right? Sprite, I can do Sprite. Mug root beer, that's great. But Pepsi, I didn't ask for a Pepsi. It's disgusting. I asked for a Dr. Pepper, and so what do I assume when I put the right amount of money in, the right flatness and crumple, when I put that in, and I know I did my part, I push the right button, and I get the wrong thing, my assumption immediately is this. That machine is broken. And when we treat God like a vending machine and we put the right amount of faith in, the right amount of obedience in, we push the right buttons, we don't get exactly what we ask for. Our first assumption is, God must be broken. I tell you this morning, God doesn't work like a vending machine. God is not up there going, if you just insert the right amount of faith, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. No, God functions much, much greater than that. God's hand is not a hand that says, even if you want evil, I'll give you evil. God's hand always does good. He looks at us and he says, it doesn't matter how much faith and obedience you have. I know what's best for your life. And I'm going to throw circumstances at you that you may or may not be ready for. But I'm going to be with you. And my good hand is going to guide you. This morning, I wonder if we can start looking at God's will in our life less as, less as I need to be perfect and receive perfection and more at, I'm a mess and I need God's help. Well, my crinkled up, crinkled up dollar bill, just it's not worthy of, of inserting. I know I don't have the right faith, the right obedience, and you know what? God still gives me Dr. Pepper. The Lord is good. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. I wonder this morning if we can seek God's good hand in our life, not based on our goodness, not based on our circumstances, but on a trust that God is always working for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your good hand. Lord, we thank you that it guides every aspect of our life, and Lord, that's a comfort to me. Lord, in my own selfishness and sin, there are times that I want to do things on my own, and Lord, it scares me to yield control to you. So this morning, I pray that you would convict my heart, Lord, that you would show me that my own life is a crumpled bill, not worthy of anything to give to you. Lord, show me the one that's broken is not you, but is me. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would save me from my crumpled up, broken life. Lord, I ask forgiveness for the, the sin and the rebellion I have. Lord, your justice is right and good on me. And Lord, I ask, 
I ask for your forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, pay for my penalty of sin through Jesus. Lord, forgive me for for all that I've done wrong. And Lord, let me trust your good hand for the rest of my life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.